Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay. Why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering, is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month. For the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... Political polling is a foundation stone of modern democracies. But when the actual predictive ability of polling is negatively impacted by a decrease in the democratic participation rate, do polls remain representative? How effective is political polling today? And what role did political polling play in the impeachment of Park Geun-hye? In our conversation prior to his recent lecture at the University of Michigan, UC Berkeley professor Teku Lee discusses how the political science of public polling, until recently a primarily American discipline, has gained traction over the last decade in South Korea. This episode was produced in collaboration with the NAM Center for Korean Studies. You call political responsiveness a foundation stone of modern democracies. Tell us more about that. Well, uh, yes, in the sense that what ex- what's expected when uh, political scientists use the term responsiveness is that there's some kind of correspondence between um, something like the will of the people to the extent that that can be ascertained and the actions of uh, those in government representing um 
you know, the demoy, if you will. And, you know, it literally goes back to the very foundational idea of democracy itself. If you break apart the word into demos and kratos, it's the idea of the people and power, as opposed to, you know, autocracy, you know, auto and kratos, which is, you know, the, the self or the ruler and power. So the idea of, you know, people power as opposed to the power of, you know, a uh, a dictator or some someone other than uh, the people having the power is in, is encapsulated in this idea that what the people want to see in terms of governance is you know uh, reflected in the the words and the deeds of uh, government itself. So I think that's that's the sense in which you know I think um, when people typically think about democracy and the concepts that undergird democracy, I think it's common to think in terms of consent, um, legitimacy, accountability, and uh, what is less often, at least I think among political theorists, considered is, um, you know, responsiveness itself. And But on the empirical side of political science, I think, it, especially for somebody who primarily works with public opinion data like I do, it is one of the, I guess, most basic ways that we could try to assess the health of a, uh, of a democracy. The political science of responsiveness analyzes the timing of changes in public opinion as measured by opinion polls mm -hmm. to the timing of legislative debate and decision. That's about right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you say that the political science study of responsiveness has been largely an American field of study. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that? To answer that question, I would go back a little bit to how political scientists uh, study responsiveness itself. So the core idea behind how an empirical political scientist like I, like someone like myself, would study responsiveness is to think of the outcomes of politics as essentially being a function of the inputs into politics, which should be the way that people think about policy. So the typical way that political scientists would study responsiveness is to measure what the people might want out of government through uh, means or technology like opinion surveys, and then to see if there's any correspondence between that and uh, what legislators actually do, which in the initial studies were things like a measurement of how members of Congress in the United States actually voted in terms of roll call votes and so on. Now, that requires a certain kind of premise that the, what you'd like to observe is actually observable and observable in a way that is consistent and in some ways uh, regularized over time. So in the United States, I think there's a heavy presumption, although I would say it's a presumption that can actually be questioned and problematized, that the United States is an um, established democracy and that techniques of gauging the public's views, like surveys, are essentially a dem democratic practice. That the more polling there is, uh, in a way, it's almost a measure of the more robust the democracy. To me, that, may, that raised a very kind of uh, interesting intellectual question of what that relationship looks like if you go to uh, a completely different kind of society which is characterized by a transition out of a kind of politics that is not democratic into a politics that is aspiring to be more democratic. And in that transformation out of authoritarianism into democratization I, strikes me as being a shift that is especially likely to be analytically informative in terms of 
questions like responsiveness. If I had access to ideal data in the Korean context, then what you should see, if Korea is successfully transitioning out of authoritarianism into democracy, are a very weak correspondence between what people would like out of government on the front end and a very strong correspondence on the back end. Now, that requires an assumption that in authoritarian states, people are free to speak their minds when they're asked to respond to a survey, and that that, carries, that freedom carries through across the time period that you're looking at from authoritarianism to democratization. And of course, there are a lot of reasons why we might suspect that that's not the case. Americans feel free to participate in the political polling process, mm -hmm. and yet they largely do not participate in their own democratic process of voting. In right. Korea, we see a higher uh, percentage of people who do vote right. and who do get involved. Right. Right. Um, how does the lack of participation affect uh, polling? I think the lack of participation or the turn away from formal methods of engaging in the democratic process in the United States is of a piece both in terms of voting and survey response. So one of the biggest challenges uh, in my line of work over the last two to three decades has been a somewhere between a steep and an alarming decline in response rates to surveys. So in the 1970s, if I defined a thousand people that I wanted to survey, and I had the resources to survey them the right way, I could be pretty sure that somewhere between 600 and 700 people would actually respond to my survey. And then my claims that that 1,000 people or that 600 to 700 people is actually representative of you know, the universe of you know, 200 million adults in the United States would be credible to my fellow social scientists. Today, if I define a thousand people that I'd like to uh, interview for a particular survey, uh, I'd be lucky if I get a hundred of them who are willing to be interviewed. And on a lot of telephone surveys, I'd be lucky today if I get 50 or 60 of them. And my ability to claim that that 50 or 60 or 100 people is somehow representative of the thousand that I had targeted in a way to be representative of the 200 million adults in this country, you can see how tenuous those connections get. And a lot of the reasons why people are not willing to engage in survey response have a lot of commonality with the reasons why people are not willing to, to vote uh, or register to vote, for example. So, so survey response, especially when the content of the surveys have to do with elections, is increasingly a form of political action. Uh, itself. I don't want to talk about the United States because this yeah, is a clear sure, theme yeah. podcast, but this crisis, if I can call it a crisis of legitimacy in mm -hmm. terms of how people interact with both polling and right. with voting, um, it makes your job a lot harder. Yeah, and by the way, this is a challenge facing uh, survey researchers and pollsters in Korea as well. Um, the decline in terms of response rates is not as steep. So, for example, uh, in the lead up to 2015, when there was legislation passed uh, to establish regulations uh, for the Federal Election Commission to oversee how polling is conducted as relates to elections in Korea and how the media coverage of uh, polling is regulated, uh, there was a very lively discussion about setting a cutoff in terms of response rates beyond which at least it was proposed that people couldn't talk about that as a real poll. And the cutoff rates that they were discussing at that time were uh, 15 or 20 percent, I think. And that's a higher response rate than we get in the United States. But the fact that they were discussing that means that that's also a significant problem as far as, you know, people conducting election polls in Korea see their landscape. 
Koreans, in my view, are also quite cynical and jaded about their own political process. Mm -hmm. um, but we also see a lot of civic engagement, um, That's right. like we saw recently mm -hmm. in the uh, movement to impeach the president, mm -hmm. Park Geun-hye. In the paper you're presenting this afternoon at the NAM Center's mm -hmm. uh, colloquium, you say you aim to expand the parameters of the study of political responsiveness by putting South Korea in the spotlight with comparisons to Taiwan and Japan. So how does the political polling differ in South Korea compared to the United States in terms yeah. of methodology or in terms of how the public engages with it? So I think the first thing to say is in many ways there's more in common than there is different because survey research and polling is a, is a technique. Uh, and because it's a technique, when things go wrong, we are able to figure out why they went wrong. And when things go right, we know that the science has been done well. That being said, part of my view, part of my interest in um, conducting this research by interviewing a lot of uh, pollsters and politicos using polls in Korea and Taiwan and Japan is to recognize that these are what sociologists would call fields. Uh, they're kind of organizational fields, and organizational fields are likely to differ across country contexts. So the way in which pollsters understand their work, the norms that regulate their practices, and the degree to which those are connected to some kind of habits of democratic politics are likely to be different across these different contexts. And that you can only access by interviewing pollsters and getting a sense of how they see their own work. In terms of the, the, the literally the practice of collecting data through these interviews, either face-to-face, -face, online, or through telephones, there are some differences. So in the United States, it's more likely than not still that polls will at least aim towards trying to achieve what people would call um, a probability-based sample, which means when you define a universe, let's say the universe is registered voters in the United States, you're going to design your sample so that everybody in that universe has some known probability of being in your sample. In Korea, for the most part, and also in Taiwan, I was surprised to learn through my interviews that most pollsters have kind of given up on that ideal standard in terms of um, sampling so that people will use what's called quota sampling, which is a way of trying to achieve a likeness, a resemblance to representativeness without giving everybody in your universe a known probability of being in your sample. So that's one example of a difference. Uh, it, you know, polling is a lot cheaper. Uh, in Korea and Taiwan than it is in the United States, in part, I assume, because of um, human resource course costs involved. And But one consequence of that is the, the quality of the data that's collected has more variance. Part of what I mean by that is there's a range in terms of how people actually go about collecting their data and designing their sample from uh, on the low quality end what uh, Koreans would call ARS surveys, so automated uh, response surveys, where a telephone, if you pick up the phone, there is a computerized, digitalized voice on the other end that sort of walks you through a set of questions. So that carries almost no capital, human capital costs, but it's also very um, low quality data just in terms of cutoffs and a whole range of uh, other things that you have to worry about in terms of that kind of uh, interview context. The one other notable difference just in terms of data collection itself is uh, I was somewhat surprised to discover that in Korea there's a real reluctance to uh, conduct surveys by using online methods. And in part, the most commonly raised objection to doing online surveys was the idea that older Koreans would be uh, very reluctant to engage in online surveys. And as a result of their being very reluctant to engage in online surveys, the surveys themselves would be much more in doubt. So a lot of people would 
mistrust the results of surveys, especially election-related surveys that were con uh, conducted online, whereas in the United States, I think there's a very heavy shift to move to online uh, surveys, essentially um, to follow Sutton's law, because that's where the money is <laughs> these days. Is that also where the eyeballs are? Yeah. So, and I think, you know, especially increasingly, if you, if you think of the reason for collecting um, election-related data through surveys, trying to figure out where the surprises are likely to be. I mean, you could think of two reasons why you might want to collect survey data. One is to use it as a, as a predictive tool. So who's going to win? Who's going to lose? And a lot of campaigns do that. But the other important reason why you want to conduct surveys is to make sure that something isn't going to grab you and, and catch you by surprise, as happened in the U.S. election in 2016. And if that's why you're interested in conducting a survey, I think you really can't stick to the old ways of trying to you know, tell, catch people at their homes through a landline because people are on their cell phones, people are online, and you have to go to where people are. Otherwise, you're going to miss a lot of dynamic change. Your research relies on expert opinion instead of testing for the statistical congruence of polling data and legislative data. Why did you choose this method? Well, in part because I found that the data that were available in Korea were sufficiently high in variance in terms of their sampling methods and data quality that I didn't feel like I could, I could assume a certain baseline in the data and then just run the numbers. But also, as the more I thought about it, I became more interested in this question of how do pollsters see their own work and what kinds of norms and practices. Because there's so much variance that I saw on the data end, I was interested in seeing what fed into that in terms of the front end, in terms of the data construction uh, itself. And, um, and so that's, you know, the only way to access uh, those data are to, you know, conduct the kind of uh, interviews that we, uh, that we conducted. You've described your preliminary findings as a more multifaceted, if somewhat democratically distressing, view of the relationship between polling, public opinion, and political responsiveness than in previous U.S.-based accounts. Can you unpack that for us? Sure. I... Um, I think the, 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 the U.S.-based results on responsiveness themselves are worth questioning, in part because if you think about this kind of virtuous uh, circle of democratic responsiveness, it presumes that voters uh, have a deep interest in politics, are well-informed in politics, and on the basis of that deep interest and high level of information are able to shine a light to politicians about what they would like you know, uh, government to do. And on the representative side, that uh, you know, politicians are primarily interested in serving the public interest as opposed to fattening their own pockets. And so therefore, they, both of those things they're kind attentive of, to that shining light and are responsive to it. Both of those it. characterizations yeah. sound a little inaccurate to the present state of politics and uh, They do in, in, a, in a lot of places. Yeah. But I think, so, so that virtuous circle, I think, is, is probably an ideal type. But it's an ideal type that I think is generous enough in terms of being able to absorb a lot of error or a lot of mistakes or a lot of, you know, malintentions along the way. So from that perspective, you know, I think there are sources of skepticism in Korea in terms of how well both voters and the media and politicians really understand what goes into the sausage making of polling. So that part, I, I think that part is really no different from almost any other you know, advanced democracy in that sense. I think voters are always reluctant 
uh, citizens in the sense that everybody has something better to do than politics. Otherwise, we wouldn't have representative systems of democracy. Koreans had the opportunity to become as cynical about their polling as people in North America have due to the consistent failures of a lot of polling. Right. Do South Koreans um, perceive it with the same sometimes negative attitude right. that we do in the, here in the States? So I, I think the, what I find emphatically is that, that is, they are less cynical about the practice of polling, and the practice of polling carries a lot more legitimacy in the following senses. One is the, the level of polling in any given election in Korea is so high that a lot of the pollsters we interviewed talked about survey toxicity or survey politics because the, the level of surveying had become so oversaturated that it had become a factor itself in, in the electoral process and people wouldn't be investing that much time in it if they didn't somehow believe that it had some legitimacy in the public's eyes. The other way of looking at that is polls themselves have a lot more consequences in Korea and Taiwan than they do in the United States. Yes, so in, in Taiwan in particular, both parties use polling instead of fielding primaries to select candidates to run for subnational offices, which strikes me as being at least interesting, if not shocking, in the sense that you are giving a technique that has a lot of known limitations and opportunities for exploitation, a great deal of power to decide important political decisions that I would argue parties should be making. So I started out with this example in 2000 and. Uh, 12 of trying to of deciding that maybe you would field a poll instead of having a presidential candidate decide to run or not run. Uh, so at that level of consequences, it, polls are given a tremendous amount of power. And in my interviews, there are a lot of stories of clear abuses of that power where, you know, one of the interview subjects we talked to talked about a practice that apparently is used, I don't know how often it's used in Korea, of essentially running these ARS surveys to figure out which uh, voters in a particular jurisdiction are going to be for your candidate, but not running those surveys essentially to find out whether your candidate is popular, but using those surveys to get a list of people that you know are going to be supporters of your candidate, and then fielding a second poll, which is supposedly an objective neutral poll, but adding those people that you have discovered in the first round to be your supporters into that sample as though they were randomly chosen to be in that sample. And that way, it's almost like, you know, very carefully titrating, you know, the support levels that you're able to report out for your candidate. So, you know, this interview subject said, you know, he's seen cases where this has been done sequentially. So if you if you can identify 30% of supporters in a district, the claim is in the first poll, you will roll out maybe 5% of that sample. And in the second poll, you'll roll out 10%. And in the third poll, you'll roll out 15%. And then the media story becomes about how much momentum this candidate has. And then it becomes one of these, you know, wag the tail situations where you're able to use this technique to generate, you know, this reality of your candidate actually having a lot of support. It's so interesting, and I'm going to urge listeners to uh, find the Nam Center lecture on YouTube. How did we see polling and public opinion play out over the course of the 2016 presidential scandal and subsequent impeachment of Park Geun-hye? Well, you know, I think in some ways the, the scandal was um, of such great proportions. In a way, I think it's a reasonable account to say that the presidency of Park Geun-hye would have fallen apart without any polling. I think what the effect of the polls did was uh, essentially uh, create a common narrative for everybody to, essentially, to understand how the public was reacting 
to this scandal just by following the gradual and very eventually very steep decline in Pakana's presidential support levels down to I mean, I remember following the news and watching it at 25%, 20%, 10%, and at each stage, feeling like it couldn't possibly get any lower, and then watching it get lower and lower. And I think that is possibly a direct effect of the polling, that people see this kind of collective phenomena at work, and their observation of that phenomena, collective phenomena, feeds into the furthering of that collective phenomena, where at some point, her approval rates were down to about 3%, which is almost certainly within the within margin, the margin of, error. of error of zero, uh, you know, for her approval rating. So I, I think, you know, polls played that kind of uh, effect in that scandal. But I think that the, the nature of the scandal itself probably would have done a lot of work to damage, if not end the presidency on its own without the polls. Tegu Lee is a professor of political science and professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley. He's speaking at today's colloquium series at the NAM Center for Korean Studies here at the University of Michigan. This talk was co-sponsored by the Department of Political Science and Political Scientists of Color. Thank you for speaking with the Korea File. Thank you so much. That's the Korea file for this week. To see Teku Lee's full Nam Center lecture, check out Master or Servant, Public Opinion, Polling, and Democratic Responsiveness in Korea on YouTube. While you're there, subscribe to the Nam Center's YouTube channel at UMICHNCKS. That's U-M-I-C-H-N-C-K-S. Music on this episode is Kim Yun-ja's Bombiga. Look for it on YouTube. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher, on Facebook, and on Twitter, at The Korea File, with daily links and current news and commentary about the peninsula. And please take a minute to rate this podcast wherever you subscribe. Every review allows us to expand our audience and helps new listeners discover the show. Then, in April... What does it mean to treat nationalism like a commodity? Check back wherever you found this podcast in the middle of the month for a conversation with U of M's own Jiun Bang on nationalism and commodification in the South Korean marketplace. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.